imagine imagine that feeling of like when people sing happy birthday to you in a restaurant imagine that going on for 30 minutes <laughs> hi and welcome to episode of nation my name is brandon sparks and I'm Thomas Horton. And here on Cination, we discuss film genres and the tropes and stories in them. And this month, we are talking about the works of Guillermo del Toro. We are now entering into part three of our series on the filmography of del Toro. And Thomas, what have we talked about the past two weeks regarding del Toro's work? Well, we've discussed from kind of a timeline. We've talked about how he's someone who started very independently with Kronos dipped his toes into Hollywood with Mimic and didn't have the best uh experience with it went back to independent films with devil's backbone but then really broke out both in like creatively and and financially with blade 2 and hellboy he he really became someone that studios could go oh this guy yeah he's got he's got the look of an altor but he can he can knock out a big budget comic book film mm-hmm. so that's where we left off kind of with him professionally on his timeline as far as themes, we were talking about, you know, the the overall theme of a lot of times it's it's monst- it's not monsters that are scary. It's men, yeah. specifically greed. We've talked about how often greed plays into his films. Fascism yeah. <laughs> pops up a lot. <laughs> Very anti-fascist. Um, and, and so it's oftentimes mixed in with that, like, monsters aren't that scary is this kind of childlike fairy tale. approach even we've discussed with with hellboy while there's not really like a a child's view to see the film through we are constantly seeing hellboy as this one we're introduced to him as a child and and he's is kind of this like brooding teenager who's never been able to be out in the world so he does have this kind of juvenile mindset or viewpoint that that we get to see his world through which is the irony of that because you know he's this demon who's supposed to be bring about the end of the world and he's being grounded by his father mm-hmm. and then from a like from a filmmaking standpoint we've talked about obviously his love for prosthetics for uh, practical effects and then as he gets more and more budgets for his film his really unique ability to combine visual effects computer generated effects with practical effects really well so i think you and i were both Mm -hmm. really impressed with with blade 2 and with hellboy given their time period at at how well the the visual effects do blend in with the practical effects yeah because for a movie that's some of the like with blade 2 20 years old now and you're like oh this looks better than some films that came out a decade later or even just a few years ago in terms of vfx um and, and some don't work as much but but work as much but it's that blending of practical effects. I think even Del Toro said like it's hard to make visual effects look good a lot of the time with certain things, but you have to blend it with practical effects to kind of give it that take the edge off of it, I guess. Mm-hmm. And and yeah, his his he's really amazing at world building from Kronos mm. on from a small scale to a large scale. He's able to kind of build out the world the mythology of certain things. And sometimes I think we'll talk about this with Pan's Labyrinth a little bit. And I heard him talk about it in an interview. He was like, you don't have to explain the fantasy of it all. I think sometimes it's just, it becomes inherent in the story. Like, mm-hmm. you know, you know, every detail about the fairy tale because he, he, it's interesting. He talks about he's like how with Pan's Labyrinth specifically, he works a lot with archetypes 
and he's just like i want to kind of just deal with these archetypes and not like try to like add so much depth to them and that or or add like all these pieces of information you don't need for the story mm-hmm. it's all about kind of the story aspect of it and yeah it, his stuff is very much this fairy tale as we've kind of all discussed the past few weeks very fairy tale like structure I, all of his films we'll talk about today have some sort of like prologue or narration or setting up the world you're jumping into it's very much like once upon a time there this happened and now this is happening kind of thing it's it's very much uh i mean with with hell with hellboy 2 specifically it starts off with a fairy tale mm-hmm. um that introduces you to the world of what the plot of hellboy 2 will be um devil's backbone had kind of almost a once upon a time thing pacific rim will have kind of a once upon a time thing as well um so it's a very kind of interesting thing that he does and he's able to blend it's his it's interesting because everyone kind of we talk about how everyone considers him a horror director in some way but it, a lot of his stuff isn't scary and it's mostly just a his films are just dark is kind of mm-hmm. the thing it's that pan's labyrinth isn't a horror film but it's a dark fantasy and yeah. it's that blending of of fairy tale it's the I, we, I said earlier in the first episode kind of how it's like in a way it's like mixing disney with hitchcock it's a it's kind mm-hmm. of a dark dark view of the world but through a fairy tale and he he kind of because uh, a lot of fairy tales are very much like that they're not the kind of colorful flowery there's more to them and there's more kind of meaning behind them and del toro is always trying to capture that yeah um another theme i think we briefly talked about last week too was the idea of like father child relationship in some way Mm-hmm. And I with with Blade with Hellboy specifically, but also kind of Blade Two to an extent. Uh, sometimes it's usually a strained relationship, and I think we'll definitely discuss this this week with a few movies of kind of either a, a, a father son relationship or father child relationship or some sort of loss of innocence uh, within that. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so that's what we talked about, and this week we're talking about Pan's Labyrinth, Hellboy Two, The Golden Army and pacific rim so let's start off with pan's labyrinth and let me tell you how this got made because apparently it was kind of a a hectic shoot for del toro so we left off with del toro last week after he just directed two very successful superhero adaptations with blade 2 in 2002 and hellboy in 2004 and so after that hollywood studios began courting Guillermo del toro to direct their next superhero film Del Toro said that he was basically offered every superhero film that was in development saying, I was thinking about it because it was very tempting. And I said, do I do Pan's Labyrinth or do I do a big movie? The idea for Pan's Labyrinth had been ruminating in his mind for decades. It spurred from a reoccurring dream from his childhood where every midnight, a mythical fawn would step out from behind a grandfather clock and look at, and peer at him. Um, for years, he had been mm. shying down ideas for a variety of projects in his notebooks, but the images, creatures, and ideas for Pan's Labyrinth were the ones that were dominating them. He first began writing notes in the film in 1993, 13 years before the film's release, um, and right when I think Kronos is being made. Mm-hmm. Um, one day, while Del Toro was in the middle of contemplating choosing between a Marvel movie or Pan's Labyrinth, Del Toro lost his irreplaceable notebooks. He was in London at the time, and he actually left them in the back of a taxi cab, and he was distraught. 
But two days later, the cab driver found them and was able to return them because after looking through them, he realized how important they might be to the person who had lost them. Hmm. Uh, Del Toro took this as a sign that he should be directing his passion project and not some big film. Uh, another film he had turned down also during this time to do Pan's Labyrinth was Chronicles of Narnia at the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Oh, no way. Yeah, which would have been really interesting mm-hmm. with him doing that. Um, the original idea for Pan's Labyrinth was actually about a pregnant woman who arrived at a mansion in Spain and her husband worked for the mansion owner restoring the home. Uh, the woman then fell in love with a fawn in a labyrinth. They made love and he asked for the blood of her firstborn in order to open the gate and let her enter the magical kingdom to be with him. Uh, the one, the ending was this woman sacrificing her son to go with the love of her life, the fawn. Eventually Del Toro realized it was more, more uh, interesting to talk about the magic through the girl's eyes so that was the previous plot. What did Pan's Labyrinth have becoming, Thomas? The plot of it. So it is a fairy tale told from a child's point of view. Um, a young girl named Ophelia, whose father has passed away, and her mother has remarried and is pregnant with the child of a cruel uh, captain for the Spanish government after the Spanish Civil War. Yeah. And so they are. She and her mother move out to this house on the countryside, where kind of the this captain's regiment is set up to root out the last of the rebels that are living in the Spanish countryside. So while her, her mother is sick with the pregnancy and she's dealing with having this monster of a, of a stepfather, she starts being visited by a fawn who tells her that she is the reincarnation of this mythical princess. Mm-hmm. And she has until the full moon to accomplish all these tasks to be reunited with her family on on this other kind of fairy tale realm yeah and and it's uh what's interesting about the movie too it's like there are two there really are two separate plots it's like Mm -hmm. you have the the fascist government in spain plot with the captain and then you have this fantasy plot with uh with the young girl um and he balances them very well and it makes you intrigued in both of them so mm-hmm. uh, Sergei Lope- uh, L- Lopez, uh, who plays Captain uh, Vidal, uh, said that Del Toro came to him a year and a half before filming, and he spent two and a half hours describing the entire plot of Pan's Labyrinth in great detail. So the stuff that Thomas just said. Uh, Lopez said it was incredible, and he was hooked, and he asked Del Toro if there was a script, and Del Toro said, no, nothing is written. <laughs> a year later, he would give Lopez a script, and apparently it was exactly the same story Lopez was told in that initial meeting. Um, Del Toro also saw his film as a companion piece to his earlier film, The Devil's Backbone, which is about a young boy arriving at an orphanage during the final days of the Spanish Civil War, having lost his family, um, when Pan's Labyrinth is about a young girl who arrives at the home of Captain Vidal after the Spanish Civil War is over and fascists have taken over. Um, it is reported that several Hollywood studios offered to put up the money for the film, uh, doubling the film's budget as long as Del Toro shot the film in English, because the whole yeah. film is shot in Spanish, Del Toro said he didn't want to, he didn't want any compromise to the story to suit market needs. He goes later on in an interview uh, with uh, I believe, or it was a kind of a 15 year uh, anniversary of Pan's Labyrinth. He said, "I like going from big movies to smaller movies. I like it because it keeps you honest and it keeps you scared. Both things are very important." 
So, so Thomas, what's your history with Pan's Labyrinth? Um, I watched this one probably leading up to the Oscars in 2007, right? It would have been the 2007, 2006. Yeah, it came out 2006. It was one that that just was getting like a ton of buzz. And in a weird way that, you know, unfortunately not a lot of non-English language films, especially at this period, in this period, got Mm -hmm. that much buzz. Um, I can count probably on one hand when I was a kid, like the Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, that's Pan's the Labyrinth. One. Yeah. Uh, Life is beautiful. Yeah. That's probably it. And so this was this was one and and it was that kind of thing. Like I, I hadn't been keeping track of this one. I was like I was reading Entertainment Weekly at this point, but not like I wasn't yeah. as like deep into the development and that kind the of weeds, thing as, yeah, yeah. as I, as I got later on in high school. But I do remember like at some point making the connection, like, Oh, this is the guy who did Hellboy, which I yeah. said last week, like I was a huge <laughs> fan of Hellboy. My mom loved Hellboy. So yeah. we, we rented pants labyrinth. She and I always tried to watch like as much of the Oscar stuff as we could. So we rented pants labyrinth leading up to the Oscars. And so this was definitely the one after like the one two punch of hellboy and then this i was like all right i'm i'm in i I don't know (laughs) you know i didn't know who this guy was but but i'm down and so yeah really really impressed the first time i watched it obviously a lot of images that stick with you Mm -hmm. so it felt a lot fresher to me but i when i sat down to watch it this weekend i was like i don't think i've watched this all the way through since the 2007 oscars so yeah it was definitely an interesting experience revisiting it yeah, I only watched this back then, but it does make you wonder, uh, especially coming from, because I don't know how it was with, with you, accessibility-wise, for foreign language films in the South, like, it makes me wonder if this was one of, if not the first, like, foreign language film I saw. Because, like, we were in high school when this came out, and I feel like I saw this in high school. Either, I don't know if it was right around the Oscars. It might, it might happen a few years later. I'm pretty sure it was in high school, so it feels like this is one of those like early films of like that you see that's that's a foreign language film. And now, I mean, films like this, like international films, are so much more accessible um, with in the streaming world. It's so much easier to watch foreign language films because, uh, like, if back in the day, like you, when you went to a video store and where we were, where I was from, at least, it's like foreign language films were like a small section with like maybe 25 movies basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was always kind of like put somewhere kind of buried in the, in the library somewhere. So I don't, I don't think I saw this um, like right when it came out, but it, it happened a little bit later. And it was always one that kind of like, I, I feel like this is the movie in my opinion that my brain always jumps to with Del Toro. Of all the films. I, I definitely think this is the one that cemented him as an auteur. Yeah. You know, any anyone who, you know, I, I think it would be pretty rare outside of like film critics to have been like hyper aware of him for mm-hmm. as like we were saying, as hard as it was to find foreign language films at that time, to be aware of him from Kronos, from Devil's Backbone at that point. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so I do think a lot of people were probably aware at least of blade two and mm-hmm. hellboy but then for this one to come out and get all the oscar buzz and and kind of break through that non-english language barrier we were yeah. discussing i think this is the one that made people go like oh that's a guillermo del toro film and like that it's, yeah. it's what kind of set the definition even though 
you know, it's 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 following, like we said, it's following along with all this stuff he established very early on as his style. Yeah. I do think this is the one that became like his calling card. Yeah, no, I agree. Five movies in, and it's kind of like, or this is a six movie, but like, uh, yeah, it's like I think it fully establishes the idea of like the fairy tale structure that he's kind of been obsessed with his entire career, mm-hmm. but feels like here is where he kind of really gets to put it like on the table, like, oh, this is a fairy tale. This is I'm, I'm making a legit fairy tale about this through this young girl's eyes to capture the magic, but it's set against the Spanish Civil War. Like it, it, it's very much like you say, it solidifies him. Of this is kind of what Del Toro's movies will be, and then for some reason, people spend the next few years thinking he's a horror director. <laughs> uh, after this, uh, or really pretty much till now, um, because of the stuff he likes. So when watching the movie this time. What were some favorite things you had with their favorite scenes? I mean, I'm still, you know, absolutely blown away by the creature design of it all. Yeah. Doug Jones is absolutely killing it in this, especially yeah. someone I don't know. You, you've probably got some background on this. He's speaking Spanish and he's he's mouthing Spanish in this. I think it's his creature is voiced by someone else. But I yes. was like reading his lips through part of this movie now knowing that it was Doug Jones who was voicing it. I mean, he's, he's, I don't know if he learned how to mouth it phonetically or what, but, um, he's, he's absolutely killing it. Yeah. I'll tell you that now. So he, he, when he went into it, so for one, like Del Toro, like sent him an email, like, Hey, I need you in this movie. No one else can play these, this, this character, the fawn, or I guess the pale man. I don't know if that was the the one, the first ones up, I think the fawn specifically. And he says, like, I was so excited uh, but they found it was a Spanish film and he didn't speak Spanish. Um, and he seems terrified, but he, but basically Del Toro had said, Oh, just learn it phonetically. But he's like, no, I want to like, like know what I'm saying and like the meaning behind it all. So he would spend like in the makeup chair every day, five hours learning kind of Spanish and going over his lines to understand what was happening. And they did end up dubbing him, uh, with an actor, uh, Pablo, uh adon um and but because they because jones had put so much work into actually learning the language it was able to it allowed pablo to actually like just pretty much match up with jones's Mm. lips way easier than if he was like trying to speak kind of poor like just phonetically or just speaking in english or whatever like it, it actually it makes it feel like it's coming from that character because jones put so much work into actually capturing the language of it all and yeah he was the i'll say a little bit later but he was like the only english-speaking person on set is what (laughs) it was he didn't know any spanish besides the lines he was saying um but yeah he he's amazing as the font and kind of the design of the font um like how it goes from old to young as as the movie progresses as as we go deeper into the story um yeah the practical effects are kind of amazing i know del toro kind of helped create the kind of fun like kind of machinery and stuff like the animatronics of everything with with some of these with these movies uh, or with the, with these characters and i think people um i at first the the people who are doing the special effects were just like yeah this doesn't make sense like this this won't work uh with like how to do the legs of the fawn how i can mm-hmm. walk that way and it ends up working so he put a lot of effort into design designing the look and uh logistical aspects of the fawn and of like the toad was another mm-hmm. one that they have because the because yeah it's like the toad's an example of like mixing practical with cgi and that and that example where you see a lot of the toad as a practical toad uh 
taking the bugs and then it's also like cgi when the tongue's going out a mm. lot of time but yeah for 2006 when like again cgi is just becoming a big part of the industry uh it still holds up incredibly well for the most part but yeah practical effects are amazing doug jones is fantastic with kind of what he's doing Bo- body language or movement is kind of the thing it's it's mm-hmm. interesting at this period you're seeing people like doug jones and then also i mean andy circus is their prime example who does something with body movement and facial expressions with with uh with Gollum and lord of the rings but you're seeing kind of the rise of like actors actors are not just people who say lines like on screen if that makes sense yeah like there's I mean, there's more it, more to it if you just take this movie and then you know the two hellboy films which we'll talk a little yeah. bit more about hellboy 2 you know the the whole thing of the fawn in this movie is like you you never really know what his intentions are is he threatening is he friendly you can't you can't really tell no. and he embodies that obviously he's terrifying as the pale man i think that 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 little five minute scene we, we were talking earlier about like why people think that del toro is a horror director i think it's that just that five minute scene of, of the pale man in this movie yeah is is terrifying and that is like his body language and that is insane and then you've got somebody like abe sapien who like wouldn't hurt a fly uh you know is the most like gentle character in i think any of del toro's films so yeah you you it's it's really not you know about moving in a jerky way or something you know you can't you can't write off what doug jones brings to this collaboration as as they get closer and start working more together yeah i agree because he becomes a integral part to the world of a lot of these films yeah i think i read del toro said when they were watching pan's labyrinth he was either sitting near stephen king or something and when that scene with the pale man came up and he saw kind of Stephen King squirm, it was like winning an Oscar um, uh, because of it. Cause he kind of, he scared him. Uh, but yeah. I, I, so with this one too, it's yeah. I love, this is where Del Toro, like I said, kind of solidifies his stats, like a fairy tale, like director, a fantasy director. And I love how he captures a fairy tale and not, and like a traditional fairy tale, not like, a Disney like like I don't say Disney five because I think Disney stuff early on is fits in this category sometimes, but I think what we know is like fairy tales. He goes like the more traditional route of it being a darker fantasy about the kind yeah. of challenges you go Grim, through. The Grimm's fairy tales. The yeah, the Grimm's fairy tales. These kind of these darker um, fairy tales with meaning in some way. Um, so yeah, like the character uh, Ophelia. Um, the character who's played played by uh, Ivana uh, Baccaro is fantastic in this role. Mm-hmm. Apparently, uh, Del Toro had written it for like a, someone who was younger, like eight or nine. Um, but they did a a screen or uh, audition with uh, with her, and he goes, "I loved her reading. My wife was crying. The camera woman was crying, crying after her reading. I knew hands down, Ivana was the best actress that had shown up." Yeah, I yeah I knew I needed to change the entire character, a screenplay, <laughs> to accommodate her age because she was older, and she is fantastic, and it is it is kind of an interesting. A, she's a great a, a good companion piece to Devil's Backbone because those are two movies that have two great kid performances in it, mm-hmm. and I think she is 
fantastic, especially with the storytelling aspect she does with like telling stories to her uh her her brother her unborn brother yeah and i think you know when you compare her to the kid from devil's backbone i do think there's something important there in that both of those characters are are you know they're open to to the the fantastical and the mystical Uh, but they're also both like very intelligent characters you know the kid from devil's backbone is presented to us as obviously the most intelligent out of that um out of that group so i I do think both of them with that age if 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 she was a little bit younger you know it might just be this like oh yeah absolutely it's a fairy tale like my mom used to tell me but instead you get this idea that she's you know this voracious reader and even her mom wants her to put the fairy tales down and it's just like this this imagination that her her like pursuit of knowledge her pursuit of literature has has opened up her imagination in this way so yeah. so it's almost like he's tapping into this perfect age where you know you still have that want that wonder from being a kid but you're also expanding your world and so yeah, she's yeah. she's old enough to recognize that Mercedes is helping the rebels and and you know old enough to know what's going on around her but also still innocent enough to try and escape to that fantasy world. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah. You bring that part, like knowing what she's around. Anytime, like her mom's like, "Oh, your father, you need to talk to your father," and she's like, "That's he's not my dad. Yeah. He's not my dad. That's a guy you're marrying. Like, don't try to bring him as my dad. My dad was a tailor who died. Like, this guy is kind of a horrible monster. And that and that leads me into uh, uh Sergey Lopez, who plays Captain Vidal, uh, just wonderfully terrifying. Yeah, yeah, like. Like it might, I, I, how do you feel this ranks on Del Toro's villains? Because it, it is the one that feels the most like human, mm-hmm. but also possibly the most terrifying because of his stance on everything. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, this is definitely, definitely up there in in the in the top. I mean, this is this is as far as he gets into like pure evil in in yeah. human form. Yeah, but for some reason, you st- it's like he stills able to capture some sort of human aspect to this character no matter yeah. how evil he is i mean you, you you fully understand his childhood trauma that, that yeah. made him this way and that's why the his his final scene is is oh, incredibly man. i mean he, he's someone who is is, is so cold you, know, you you get that moment just before he walks out of labyrinth that is like absolutely devoid of of any humanity and then yeah. he walks out and, and the only thing he's really concerned about is his legacy to his son yeah and they're just like no no we're not giving you a legacy and it, but it is kind of like it's it's like he he, he thought he'd kind of like have his cake and eat it too like oh I have everything i want and then when i die like oh i'll leave this great legacy and they're just like we're not telling he won't even know your name man mm-hmm. we're not telling him anything uh and it's like everything he lived for to be, almost be like his father uh doesn't have it doesn't happen um so yeah uh, so lopez uh was considered at the time in i guess in spain was a very was a melodramatic or comedic actor oh. and produce and producers told del toro you should be very careful because you don't know about these things because you're mexican but this guy is not going to be able to deliver that that performance you're looking for and del toro apparently replied well it's not that i don't know it's that i don't care <laughs> um so he had i guess he had a lot of faith in, Lo- in lopez and lopez really knocks it out of the park I think he did get frustrated at one point because of uh, 
uh, Del Toro's very specific directions of like when he's doing the shaving scene, it's the kind of mm-hmm. the pant, the, the, the transition shots of the montage of him getting prepared. He said like, he's, he's telling you like smoke three times and do this and do this movement three, like this many times. And he became so annoyed at first because of the very precision, like direction that was being given. Uh, and I think by the end, I think the said he was the most like, uh, precise actors in the entire cast once the movie was over because he had gotten used to that um but yeah so i i also love i love the uh mercedes mercedes who's the housekeeper because she has she's the character that's like again we kind of saw us with devil's backbone we're like uh the 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 head the headmistress the orphanage and the doctor are helping the rebels during the civil war and now you have mercedes who is in a very similar way helping her brother out who is part of the resistance after the civil war is over, but she becomes a bigger part of it by the end um, compared to devil's backbone. She, she essentially becomes kind of a leader of mm-hmm. the resistance. Once her brother is, is killed, spoiler alert is killed by uh, the captain. Um, she becomes highly influential in this kind of resistance group. Um, but yeah, you see, like in the intro of, of of Vidal, it's like one of the early scenes is like when he kills the the old man and his son. Mm-hmm. Like right thing, you're just like this guy is like pure evil with how he kills the the kid or the guy or the 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 old the old teenage son. It looks like and the father. Like it's just like and then it's the kind of thing of like because uh, they they basically say as i'm seeing it's like they basically say he was hunting rabbits but because they're in this kind of military area they see this old man with a gun they think he's part of the rebels and he said i was hunting rabbits they searched they had searched his stuff they didn't find any any recollection or any kind of uh uh rabbits or anything that he had been hunting and then once the uh captain kills him they find the rabbits he's like oh be more careful next time before I kill someone. And then he mm-hmm. eats the rabbits for dinner the next day. Like, it's very like, it's such a cold, such a cold character. Yeah. Well, and that, that scene also introduces that. And this is something I think del Toro would have lost if this was a studio film as well, but there, there are these moments of brutality that are, yeah. you know, they're putting as much effort into the prosthetics or the, the practical yeah. effects for those moments as they do for the fairy tale moments. So yeah. you you quite literally have him bash that guy's face in in that scene, yeah. and I mean you see it happen, and you see it, yeah. And there there are uh, a couple other instances through the film, and they, you know it's never gratuitous, and they very rarely linger on it, but yeah, you do get these like moments of just brutal reality mm-hmm. mixed in with these moments of of fantasy, and and I think that's the the highs and lows that he's able to you know these these peaks of reality and fantasy that he's able to to hit or what really makes this movie pop. I mean, he's, he's not the first person to make a movie in which a kid escapes to a fantasy world to avoid yeah. the realities around them. That that's been done. You know, Jim Henson yeah, pa- did it. Um, yeah, the, the page master. <laughs> I got <gotcha>. you. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, the, the way that he goes through so much effort to build the world of the mm-hmm. fantasy, but then to also really establish the, the raw brutality of the real world makes it stand out for sure. Yeah, another thing about the look of it too, it's the cinematography of it. Um, I don't know how it was when you viewed it through through your spot, but like the the cinematography of it, it is pretty gorgeous. Uh, and I think it's also 
because you see a lot of his like amber colors for the uh for the fantasy world and the very dark kind of cold blues for the real like real life or for the the main world and Mm -hmm. that stuff he's been playing with for a while like i think you have those warm kind of hues in devil's backbone i think in blade 2 you have you have both warm when they're on the surface and cold when they're in the uh like the uh uh, the sewers, the trying to find the vampire, the the kind of uh, the reapers. Mm-hmm. Um, Hellboy has similar things to it. Like he has he's his color palette is always very interesting, but Pan's Labyrinth kind of again brings to the forefront more because it's so specific. Of this is fantasy world, this is real, this is the Earth world, and the colors kind of represent that. There is one scene I think that's that's very powerful just in the way that he shoots it and blocks it and performance and everything. But that's the uh, the death of the doctor. I think that is. Yeah. So incredibly well done in the way that he shoots it, in the way it's performed. You know, you get it's it's a really like it's one of those moments that is like it's noble. It's but, it, it you know, it, it presents this this man with like the most noble death he he could get. But it's also yeah. completely shows you the the uselessness of of murder and you know the the tragedy of it all without romanticizing it in any way it's it's pretty incredibly done and also too, it's it, it, it adds weirdly even more to the the captain's character that like the captain would rather kill this doctor the man who's been taking care of his sick wife to hopefully get the hopefully will she'll give him a son uh he would rather kill this man because of a pride moment and upset that he he disobeyed orders um then possibly like save his his wife and Mm -hmm. and possible unborn child like that's how kind of cold this guy is and he just shoots him point blank and like you and at first like you don't like you think he's gonna let him go it feels like and then it's just like pure cold-blooded shot in the back like that's it you know we don't see we don't see the bullet erupt out of his chest. He just, he doesn't even no. flinch. He just keeps moving. And you're like, he keeps oh, moving maybe, false. maybe he missed. Yeah. Maybe it was a warning shot. And then he just falls yeah. to his knees. And you're like, oh, no. Yeah. And it's, yeah. It, and, and that the doctor's character is always interesting. Because, again, you see him, him kind of like, he is, for a, for a while, he's kind of, uh, he's helping Mercedes with providing um, antibiotics to the resistance. But he's always kind of like on the side. Mm-hmm. Like he never like, oh, this is all I can get. He's never like really actively trying to be a part of it. It's more just like out of their friendship. And then when that moment happens, that's kind of when he fully kind of like, it's that he's naturally a good person is the mm-hmm. thing. He's not really picking sides. He's just naturally a good human being. And that's essentially his downfall in the world and the world of life, basically. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so when making the movie, Del Toro said everything that could go wrong on Pan's Labyrinth went wrong. Uh, the crew also thought that we were insane. The Spanish, the Spanish crew thought that I was a complete fool in the mountains, screaming nonsense. The shoot was apparently so stressful and hectic that Del Toro lost a total of forty pounds while making the movie. Oh my goodness! Um, the film apparently ran out of money at one point, so Del Toro gave up his salary. Uh, as a director and producer and back end points to finish the movie. As I said, Doug Jones was the only American on set and the only person who could speak Spanish. It sounds like Del Toro was the only bilingual on set. Um, they could talk to him. Del Toro said that the, Del Toro said that the first day Doug showed up, the crew was like, what is this American dressed as a fawn doing in a fascist period movie? 
the film was released or the film premiered on May 27th, 2006 at Cannes Film Festival, where it received reportedly or, or where it reportedly received a 22 minute standing ovation, which it sounds great, but also sounds really awkward if you're having to stand for 22 minutes. <laughs> those, those, those stories always come out and they're just like, yeah. yeah, everyone stood and clapped for 30 minutes. I'm just like, Did you, why? I would leave like this great <laughs> movie, but imagine imagine that feeling of like when people sing happy birthday to you in a restaurant you know imagine that going on for 30 minutes nobody wants that i mean there, there's a great video you can find it of like when once upon a time in hollywood premiered there and it's just like seven minutes and those the cast and crew feels like they seem so awkward mm-hmm. like tarantino is just doing his like at one point because and the camera's like up on their face oh yeah i've seen that video when it's like and, getting up and he's so close and he's just them. like he's just doing the like the peace like peace sign over his eyes or whatever and margot robbie's kind of like thank you like doesn't know what to do and you can tell Pitt and dicaprio just like want to get out of here it feels like and like that's seven minutes <laughs> picture that for 22 minutes i would be i'd be like we can go we can leave you can keep clapping but i'm gonna leave yeah. um maybe i'm not appreciative but that just sounds like yeah 22 minutes is a long time that's a long that's a whole episode of the office like that you're just sta- <laughs> you're just standing there watching them clap for you anyway uh the film later op- uh the film later opened uh in spain first on october 11th 2006 and would open in mexico a little over a week later it would not be released until de- december 29th 2006 in the united states um, where it would only gross $37 million, but it would have a worldwide gross of $83 million against a $19 million budget. Um, if that 22-minute standing ovation didn't tip you off, uh, the film did receive rave reviews once it was released. It currently sits at 95% on Rotten Tomatoes, and our go-to film critic Roger Ebert gave the film 4 out of 4 stars. And at the end of the year, when he was compiling his top 10 movies of 2006, he stated, Even in a good year, I'm able to see everything. And I'm still not finished my 2006 discoveries. I'm still looking at more 2007 movies too. And that list will run as usual or, and that list will run as usual in late December. Nothing I am likely to see, however, is likely to change my conviction that this year's best film was Pan's Labyrinth. Um, The film would also make a lot of noise. The Oscars finally catapulting Del Toro as a favorite amongst his peers and a rare feat for a national film. Uh, It receives a total of six nominations, including best original screenplay the film would win three Oscars for Best Makeup, Best Cinematography, and Best Art Direction. If you notice, I didn't say it didn't win Best Foreign Language Film. Mm-hmm. It actually lost Best Foreign Language Film to the Ger- the German film The Lives of Others. Oh, that they were up against each other the same year? Same same year. I love that movie. That is a fantastic film. That, that's yeah. a tough call, man. Oh, I didn't realize <laughs> they were the same year. Uh, I'm going to read this for you. Cause, so, Best Foreign Language Film, it's... Uh, Lives of Others, uh, Pan's Labyrinth, um, After the Wedding, which is Suzanne Beer, mm-hmm. um, Days of Glory, and Water. So you have so Pan's Labyrinth, Lives of Others. Let me read you the best picture nominees, and you tell me, do you substitute any of these for either of those two films? The Departed, which one? Uh, Babel by Ingeritu. Mm. Letters from Mirajima. Yeah. Little Miss, Little Miss Sunshine. Uh, and the queen queen uh, <laughs> letters from Iwo Jima I, I do like better than flags of our father 
Uh-huh. Um, I think it's the superior of the two films. Don't know if it belongs up there, but um, Departed, I stand by. I I, <laughs> I know there's a lot of hate out there for the Departed yeah. being the best picture of the year, but I love the Departed. I'm still waiting on the backlash to the Departed backlash, where everybody's like, actually, no, that's a great movie. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's 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 a that's I, I would definitely get rid of the Queen and probably letters to from iwo jima and and put both of those in the best picture run because i do yeah i i completely missed that those two were the same year but i do i yeah. do really love uh lives of others also some movies that same year were uh little children okay uh united 93 mm-hmm. uh half nelson blood diamond pursuit of happiness i love blood diamond <laughs> yeah no notes on a, notes on a scandal mm. uh volver by uh pedro uh, almodovar Ooh. And uh, Devil Wars Prada and Dream Girls. That was the other another big one was Dream Girls. Yeah, Babel's a weird one too. It's definitely not my favorite in your E two. I, I uh-huh. don't know. I'd be tempted to pull that one out of the running too, but it is still like an, a very interesting film. I actually haven't seen Babel. I'll admit that it's a weird choice. Seen. Like it's one of those that you're just like if Brad Pitt and Kate Blanchett weren't in this movie, it wouldn't be nominated <laughs> for Best Picture of the Year. Okay, yeah, odd year. I, yeah, I was a freshman in high school. Now that this puts in perspective, because I remember the Departed came out, and we had a teacher who's like, "Yeah, I don't, I'm not a fan of the Departed. Just too much like cussing in it." And I'm like, "Okay." I just I I remember my my mom and one of her friends having a conversation where she was like, "Yeah, it was it was just too much, too much cussing." And and her friend who was like traveled for business was like, "That's how people in Boston talk." <laughs> and I was like, okay. Oh, that's great. Um. But yeah, so the film did win Best Makeup, Best Cinematography, and Best Art Direction. So, after the critical and financial success of Pan's Labyrinth, Del Toro again found himself with a ton of offers for other movies. Uh, one she, ones he allegedly turned down during this time were I Am Legend, mm. a film adaptation of Halo, which was the kind of the, one of the big ones, yeah. which was apparently offered to him by Peter Jackson. Um, allegedly, he turned down... Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince. Don't know how true this is. Um, I do know he was offered Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban earlier in his career. Mm-hmm. And he said in 2017, that was the only film he regretted turning down when looking back on it. But he would turn all of these films down to work on the sequel to the 2004 film Hellboy. Um, a sequel for Hellboy was announced a month after the release of the original film, but certain things got in their way, uh, uh, got in their way when ma- uh, when trying to make it. Um, the original studio that did the film, Revolutionary or Revolution Pictures, lost its deal with Sony Pictures or Sony. Uh, so as a company, they began exploiting rights to their earlier films to other studios for either sequels or remakes. Um, the big one being they licensed the rights to a Hellboy sequel to Universal Pictures in August of 2006. And so after the release of Pan's Labyrinth, Del Toro finally gained enough clout to get the movie into production at Universal, and it would start filming in June of 2007 in Budapest. So, so Thomas, what's your history with Hellboy 2? After I mean, it's kind of probably the same as Hellboy 1, I assume. I saw, I saw Hellboy 2 in theaters. That was definitely my first Del Toro theater experience. Wow. But yeah, I, I, was, I was hyped. I was a big fan of the first one was was ready to come back for the second one it had been you know it'd been long enough that i feel like for a while there fx was running the first one like (laughs) every weekend yeah um so i'd seen it i'd seen it a lot at that point and yeah saw it saw it opening weekend 
Okay. Yeah, I I came to this one again very late in the game. I was it was I think I watched them both back to back. I again I think it's just a video store thing. This is a cinephile thing in L.A. I'm not. Maybe I'm wrong. I because I feel like I know I was not watching Hellboy two when it came out. I was sorry. I was not one of the people who was on that boat at that point yet. I'm all for a third one, by the way. Uh, now, um, but yeah. So what is Hellboy two: The Golden Army about, Thomas? Uh, so it's about Hellboy and his BPRD team who are tipped off to this kind of elven prince who is wreaking havoc across New York. Yeah. And as they try to track him down, they, they come across his twin sister who tells them that he is trying to uh, break this pact between the elves and the fairy tale creatures and the humans that uh, they made a pact for peace hundreds of years ago. And they've lived separately, but because of global warming and, and mistreatment of the, the earth the planet, by humans, yeah. this this Elven Princess decided he's going to bring back this golden army that the elves had built once and destroy mankind and basically ri- help the fairy tale creatures rise up. Mm-hmm. So they they set out to stop him uh, with their their team their teams back from the last one, except for the the the, the main kind char- of bland <laughs> human character from the first one uh who got shipped off to alaska and uh and a new character a new a new ally who uh-huh. is a uh ghost trapped not trapped a ghost contained yeah. in a robotic suit that allows him to move like a live person yeah voiced by Vo- voiced by seth mcfarlane seth mcfarlane yeah I um, saw they they had originally had Thomas Kretschmann down for that. They did. They which did. He, they did. he was the the head vampire in in Blade Two. Yes. The yeah the the Reaper. Yeah. No, the not Reaper. the Reaper. That was. Oh, he was the actual old the older guy. Yeah. Yeah. He was okay, the, the the patriarch vampire. Yeah. It, it, it seems like um, uh, his voice, his voice, and the mechanical sound effects to to the suit didn't mesh well. Is what he said. So yeah, Seth MacFarlane, which I think it was like one of his first like feature film movie, like feature film roles. Seth MacFarlane, I believe it was very early on. He does. I mean, he does a great job. It doesn't sound yeah. like doesn't Seth sound MacFarlane. like Ted. You know, <laughs> it doesn't sound like Peter Griffin. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. That's the, yeah. He he yeah. That's the one where like it feels like, yeah. He's actually showcasing his voice acting in a different way. The this movie is like one of the best to be continued films if that makes <laughs> sense like it sets up and it's set for a sequel but it very much leaves you like oh yeah we can definitely do one more for this like to kind of close it because we've been kind of referencing it, it's like seeing avengers uh avengers age of ultron when they reference the tony stark thing where he's like up in the like fighting thanos and everyone's dead mm-hmm. it's like seeing that and then never getting that is what yep. this series feels like when you see hellboy being like oh he's gonna end the world don't trust him he's gonna end the world these human are and, and it's like the prince the prince is like that don't think you're human you're not they can't they can't accept you we're leading to this big thing that we have never gotten yep and it sucks but again ron perlman is fantastic in this i think i think the cast has like has a great him and doug jones Mm-hmm. Like the scene when they're like drunk talking about the women they love is fantastic. And we, we said we said last week, but Doug Jones voiced Abe this time. David Hyde Pierce voiced Abe. Yeah. removed himself 
from from the project um out of respect to doug jones so just absolute great job and this yeah this this is such a good sequel in every way it's it it all the characters feel richer here we're introducing new characters we're going so much deeper into like the weird stuff i mean it, it this yeah he, he takes this comic book movie that he made the first one is is you know a comic book movie with some weird monsters mixed in and this is yeah. a fairy tale movie yeah <laughs> and it's pretty incredible like we, yeah. we barely spent there's one scene out on like city streets but otherwise you know as as soon as they go into that troll market troll the, market, almost the entire yeah. movie is in this like fairy tale world and it's it's so well realized here yeah you have is yeah you have the big kind of fight scene in the city streets where he's like saving the baby and again it's that great scene afterwards where like he is the hero and the people are like oh my god what'd you do to my baby what'd you do to the kid like what'd you like that they, they make him out to be the villain and mm-hmm. that's kind of the conflict that hellboy always has is like where do i fit in this world and it's it, and again talking about the idea of like coming from a uh a, a, a juvenile perspective a teenager's perspective that's a very much coming of age moment of like where do i fit in the world like where mm-hmm. is my what's my kind of purpose and i think he's hellboy is having to like deal with that is yeah. that what, what am i he's been to- you know he's been wanting to get out into the world for so long and everyone's been telling him like no the world won't understand you and he's been so sure that they will and then yeah and then they don't and that and then and that and then and that would lead to something that would be him take trying to end the world but yeah i yeah i think all the characters like said the characters are richer i think selma blair is is fantastic with the relationship do you do you think this movie is better than the, the first one yes 100 percent. i mean <laughs> he's this this movie has this movie benefits from pan's labyrinth doing so well because yeah there is like nothing holding del toro back in this movie you get you get the uh i mean the the angel of death or whatever that like with all the eyes yeah, and the Jones. wings it is yeah. like it is incredible you get the uh the guy the guy who we later find like built the golden army you know on his with his wagon attached to his back and his little like stilts he walks on there's so much level of intricacy in this movie that you know you watch the first one you go like wow this is so imaginative and then yeah. you, this one just like absolutely blows it out of the water i agree and i think i think uh is it Luke Goss, Jared Goss? The yeah, Luke Luke Goss. Luke, Luke Goss, Goss, yeah. Who plays the the prince is fantastic. I think he's 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 much better here than he was in, in Blade 2, which he was good. He was good in Blade yeah. 2. But yeah, he was I mean, no Mac and yeah, he was no Mac and Blade 2. Yeah, yeah, you're correct. But you you really like the the end, and it's also a little bit of um Danny Elfman does the yeah. score for this score. One? Yeah, he a does a bit of Danny Elfman score coming in, but that throne scene, like the, the end of the throne scene yeah. is, is so well done. It is truly one of those things where it, it hurts everyone there to, to have to stop this guy mm-hmm. and they, they fully understand his point of view, but they also have a duty to protect the world. And yeah. I think it, it is that, that final scene is, is so well done. Yeah. No, I, yeah, that, that fights that big fight scene, for one, another thing we we kind of we've hint, I think we talked about briefly, but it's that clockwork imagery mm-hmm. that Del Toro has. It's in Pan's Labyrinth, and it goes yeah. with the whole uh, him having the stopwatch of like when he dies or when his dad died. And with this one, it's this fight on clockwork. It's this idea. I mean, it's this interesting kind of perspective of time and the inner workings of time. Um, 
and yeah, it's a it's a fantastic scene. Um, yeah, Goss trained with Brad Allen, who was uh, of Jackie Chan's stunt team, uh, trained for like six to seven months of of for work on the film. And Allen had done a lot of Jackie Chan stuff, specifically in America. I think most recently, the people kind of know him for is that he did uh, the supervising stunt coordinating on uh, Shang Chi, um, mm-hmm. and he actually Brad Allen actually passed away uh last year at age 48 it was like just before shang chi came out and it was dedicated to him but yeah he helped with the kind of fight scenes of uh of this film or at least he he trained with goss for the uh six seven months uh someone else who's considered for this movie for the role of uh prince silver lance charlie hunnam no was uh gonna possibly the prince but they went with luke goss instead yeah, I also love again the opening kind of prologue. Again, we again we had a prologue mm-hmm. in Pan's Labyrinth with very much like a once upon a time. This was a little bit different, but it is John Hurt telling a young Hellboy the story of the Golden Army around Christmas, and it gives us it gives us insight into this world. Yeah, and it's 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 visualized in this in this really cool way. Yeah, it's done kind of, kind of in this like animated kind of. Uh, imagery basically with this with this uh, introduction. This is a really strange studio comic book film <laughs> and it is so imaginative and it's so pure it, that's yeah. that's the that's the weirdest thing to capture about the hellboy movies it's like it has they have so much heart and yeah. and especially watching it this time and I, I mean i'm i'm someone who thoroughly enjoys the marvel machine but but there is people who don't have a lot to say about how kind of cookie cutter they've become and kind of devoid of, of quirk and heart. Um, and so it's just kind of wild to go back and watch this movie and be like, yeah, this is, this is also a comic book movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? I mean, it, it feels like a, with the humor aspect of it, with the heart aspect of it, does it feel like an early predecessor to like, say James Gunn's movies with the superhero world? Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think his, well, and, you know, kind of the prosthetics they do, and, and especially mm-hmm. in the Guardians films, I think those owe a lot to this movie specifically. Yeah. So like several of Del Toro's big studio films, when it came to its release in box office, something usually stands in its way. Uh, with Blade Two, people believe the NCAA Final Four had a massive impact on the film's second weekend box office. Uh, for Hellboy, it was theaters in the South that refused to show a movie with the, with the word hell in the title especially over Easter weekend. Mm-hmm. And can you guess what affected the release of Hellboy 2, the Golden Army, after it was released on July 11th, 2008? Oh, God. I feel like I'm failing history class it's, right now. What it's happened? okay. It's, it's, it's not a history thing. It's a movie thing. Oh, uh, okay. The Dark Knight. Ah, uh, you know what? I do kind of remember those coming out around the same time. During the film's first week, it was actually Del Toro's best opening ever, grossing $35.9 million at the box office, $12 million more, the first film made in its first weekend uh critical response was also great uh with some calling it a superior film the original original one roger ebert gave the film three and a half stars out of four saying in every way the equal of del toro's original film although perhaps a little noisier it's another celebration of his love for bizarre fantasy and diabolical machines but all that buzz and box office greatness would come crashing down a week later when christopher nolan's highly anticipated batman sequel will be released grossing $158.4 million opening weekend. I believe saying a record at that point, or close to it at least. Um, mm-hmm. Pirates 2 might have been the record. Uh, Hellboy 2 The Golden Army would drop a whopping 71% uh, 
from to its second weekend, grossing only ten million dollars in its second weekend. I think dropping to the fourth spot uh, for the weekend. It eventually surpassed the film's box office gross, finishing off with one hundred sixty-eight million against the eighty-five million dollar budget. But still, not as much as what it could have done if it was not because comp- because Dark Knight pretty much swamped the box office for months. Yep. It it was one of those films that because I saw it like three times in theaters, but not like three t- like sometimes like oh I watched three times in the past month. I watched that three times in like three different months is what it felt <laughs> like. It was in my theater for a long time. I think it was in my theater till September, I believe, when it came out. So yeah, it, it was it was everything. So I want I, I, well, I kind of want to talk about this like what's so unique about this movie. It's literally being released right in the middle of when the industry's changing. Mm-hmm. Like. Dark Knight's a week later. Iron Man is two months before this. It's the summer of superhero movies, or yep. the beginning of it. And Hellboy 2 just gets caught in the, the crossfire, basically. And it feels like, like, what do you think happens if Hellboy, do, Hellboy 2 comes out a year later? Do we get a third movie? Uh, yeah, I think, I think we do. I think we get a third movie, but then we it's interesting you know if, if the third movie's happening as the beginning of avengers is happening then you get sucked up into all this like oh true. we're gonna make a, a dark horse universe and um <laughs> I, I, yeah i i think if it if this had come out any later i don't know that it would be a lot i don't i don't know that del toro would have the like carte blanche from the okay. studio that it feels like he has with this that's fair so I, I think if if superhero movies are are recognized once they start being recognized as this like cash cow, I think yeah. you have people at the studio taking a lot more interest in how mm-hmm. they're made. You know? Yeah, that's true. I mean, anytime that's like anytime things can make a lot of money, the que- the the question becomes okay, how can we make more money? So we ha- we should add more restrictions to things. Yeah, is what usually yeah, exactly. happens. Like that's what always have. And, and I know people who are like. That was a great idea. It really worked. Let me have more involvement in it to make it work better. Yep. Yep. If well, uh, we'll ask this. So that's a year. What if it comes out a year earlier? What happens? Um, I think I think we we might get a sequel then too because I, if it comes out, you know, it's the only movie anything like this in the box office that summer. Yeah. And then it's gonna you know break two fifty, and the studio is gonna be begging Del Toro to make another one. Yeah, as long as you separate it from because 2007, I believe, is Spider-Man three and and Pirates three is 07. Mm-hmm. Let me see. I want to make sure. I might be one year off though. Um, no, okay, yeah. So Spider-Man three is 2007, as is Pirates three. So as long as you stay away from those, I think you have a good shot of being a little bit bigger hit. Um, but this film, I don't know about this film, but around this time, Del Toro gets brought on to do The Hobbit. And mm. The Hobbit, I don't know if we'll go fully into this, but I'm going to get a little bit of backstory with this. The Hobbit's just a whole other, like, thing. Like, there, there's a whole, there's like a whole kind of uh, Wikipedia page just on the development of The Hobbit. <laughs> um, so Del Toro gets involved in this movie uh, April of 2008, so a few months before hellboy 2 is released he's hired to direct the film peter jackson asked him to do it um because af- after they the, the project for halo stalled he wanted to get him in and do a movie with him so and then one do the Hobbit that together. turned into district nine right the, the uh, halo, halo? yeah did it 
Is that what happened? Yeah, that was from what I've heard because they were supposed to shoot the Halo movie in Africa, and oh yeah, and that the the they were they kind of rerouted not all the money that they had intended for District Nine, but that's when Jackson kind of tapped uh, that director yeah. and was like, let's let's do this project. So yeah, that's what I've always heard was like without Halo, we wouldn't without the failed Halo movie, we wouldn't have had District Nine. That makes sense, yeah, because he looked at uh, Neil Blomkamp for uh, it says for uh, yeah, yeah, right, right, yeah, right after that, after Del Toro was was in t- in talks, Del Toro dropped Blomkamp, uh, Blom Blomkamp came on, and that would make sense that it would kind of go in District Nine. It's not official, but Jackson did produce uh, District Nine, I believe, is what mm-hmm. it was. Yeah, I think um, I think actually when they put it out, it was like Peter Jackson presents, like on the poster. Does that make sense? um so but that f- fell through um del toro got involved while there were still like lawsuits regarding the rights of lord of the rings and the rights of the hobbit but but del toro began prepping for it and he spent pretty much years he spent two years prepping for the hobbit um and basically kind of helping design the the creatures and and he said uh uh the right he goes uh and by november 2008 del toro said that he jackson um, and two other writers would realize something new about the story every week, and the script was continually changing. The writing hours accre- increased to 12 hours each day as they dedicated three weeks to finally deciding the film structures. Um, during the first few months, 2009, writing would start at 8.30 a.m., end at 3 p.m., when Del Toro would meet with Weta, uh, which is the workshop that created all the effects to it, to discuss the designs of everything. The studio approved the, the script uh, March 2009, Fun was expected to take place in 2010 New Zealand. And basically it just kept getting pushed because of lawsuit stuff, because of kind of, I guess, creative issues. It sounds like. Um, and then finally in 2010, Del Toro drops the project. Uh, he explained that he had spent two years working on the Hobbit and it still had not been given a green light. <laughs> and he goes there, there can there cannot be any start start dates until the MGM situation gets resolved. That was kind of the, the rights issues. Uh, and also the financial MGM is going to do a lot of financial issues at the time. We've designed all the creatures. We've designed the sets and the wardrobe. We have done a- a- animatics, planned very lengthy action sequences. We have scary sequences and funny sequences, and we are very, very prepared for what's finally triggered. But we don't know anything until MGM is solved. Two days later, he announced he was leaving uh, due to the ongoing delays. Um, and then that's when Peter Jackson stepped in. It feels like I'm not saying Peter Jackson was like uh, dissing Del Toro, but kind of felt like yeah. Once he left, like he only gave me like a like uh, a short amount of time to prep. It, it feels like that's why like didn't do that way. Like, oh yeah, like <laughs> I can't I can't wind the clocks back a year and a half and give me a year and a half to prep. I just kind of had to jump in and start doing it. Um, Del Toro would receive uh, writing credit on all three Hobbit films, but people i think are left to wonder what the hobbit would have been like if del toro actually directed it because i i also i distinctly remember during the development period them saying it was going to be two yes movies and part the part the part three thing didn't happen until two was about to come out oh okay yeah i feel like that probably would have helped everyone's issues with those films yeah. yeah i yeah I, I think I saw all three in theaters. I did. I, I did too. That was I, like, I just that was that weird thing. It was like they came out like three years in a row, right? Like right around yeah. Christmas. It was. I was always like, 
yep. were three it was years. It was like right when I got home from from college, like the weekend I got home from college, my family would be like, "All right, let's go see the new Hobbit movie." Because I think, um, I feel like, because the original, the yeah, so all December, yeah, because I feel like the original uh, Lord of the Rings were either November or December when they would come out. Yeah, December fourteenth, December thirteenth, December seventeenth, twenty twelve, twenty thirteen, twenty fourteen. Yeah, I just remember being very upset by the end of Desolation of Smog. Is what it was. That was my only thing. I was just like, oh, this is a really good movie. We're about to get to a big part. And then credits. And I was like, oh, can I wait a year? Um, anyway, but yeah, apparently he wanted Ron Perlman to do Smog. Was that was his mm. initial idea for uh for the Hobbit. Be a good that didn't happen. Yeah, that didn't happen. He would have been good. Um, so because of Del Toro's involvement in the Hobbit and other projects, he would actually have the biggest gap in between films going five years without making a movie. That would change with the release of the 2013 film Pacific Rim. Um, Del Toro had worked with screenwriter Travis Beecham on a project in 2006, but nothing came of it. Uh, One day, Beecham was walking down the San Monica Pier in Los Angeles and wondered what would be like seeing a giant robot and monster fighting to the death in the ocean. As Beecham worked on the film, fleshing it out, he realized it was about survivor's guilt and the loss of innocence, which is something that Del Toro has kind of explored before in previous films. Um, after dropping out of The Hobbit, Del Toro began working on an adaptation of H.P. Lovecraft's At the Mountains of Madness for Legendary Entertainment, starring Tom Cruise and produced by James Cameron. Um, Legendary had pur- purchased Beecham's treatment for Pacific Rim, and Del Toro was fascinated by it um, as he was make- as he was prepping or trying to make At-, At the Mountains of Madness. It was also during this time when Del Toro began working on other projects like the Haunted Mansion film adaptation, mm-hmm. uh, as well as a Frankenstein film adaptation. But he w- wouldn't tackle these films until At the Mountains of Madness was filmed. That was his kind of like goal. And there were rumblings that At the Mountains of Madness would be shelved because of its $150 million budget and R rating. And if it did, Del Toro planned on directing and co-writing Pacific Rim. The Lovecraft adaptation was canceled by Universal, uh, the film's distributor, in March of 2011. Del Toro said, I actually cried that weekend a lot. I don't want to sound like a puny soul, but I was really devastated. I was weeping for the movie. The movie was canceled on a Friday and he signed on for Pacific Rim that next Monday. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was quick. Production would then begin in November of 2011. So, so Thomas, what is Pacific Rim about? Uh, I feel like you summed it up pretty perfectly with that. Uh... <laughs> Giant robots fighting uh, uh, monsters to the death yeah. of the ocean. It's just, it's about this, you know, if, kaiju you know the the giant monsters popularized by the godzilla franchise and and very popular in in japanese entertainment Mm -hmm. especially in like the 70s um if kaiju happened like today in the real world the government would develop these giant robots to fight the kaiju off and Mm -hmm. for some reason i didn't really grasp like two people have to run it yeah basically yeah, basically the the robots are so I guess they're huge robots. They're yes. basically transformers is basically what's happening. Yes. And and that one person could not run it because it, it it had too much an effect on your like mental and physical strength basically. Yes. And so you had to have two people running the the robot, um one left brain, one right brain. But in turn, those two people that are running it have to be basically be like mentally compatible in yeah, some way preferably uh, related but yeah uh, it's, it's helpful if they're related basically yes yeah. it's easier so we're introduced to charlie hunnam who is a pilot with his brother 
but they get a little sloppy and his brother gets killed and he just kind of gives up piloting the Jaegers is what they're called. Yeah. And several years later, he's they're shutting down the Jaeger program and Idris Elba, who's the director of the Jaeger program, reaches out to him and he's like, I'm getting all the best Jaeger pilots together and yeah. we're going to blow up this rift in the Pacific Rim that that these kaiju come from. Yeah, basically there's there's just kind of this section of the world where the kaiju are, are they're basically being transported from one world to another and they believe that if they throw a bomb into it it'll break uh it'll, it'll basically close off the portal of the kaiju coming into the world um because at this point basically all the governments have combined to create this program and yeah it's this movie is interesting because again we said that how with Hellboy 2 is coming out when the world's changing in, in, in films. And by 2013, the world's kind of changed with films. I think 2011, mm-hmm. 2012 is kind of the last year, but 2012 is when Avengers, uh, Avengers comes out and Dark Knight Rises comes out. I feel like at this point you've had Star Wars is coming back. It's not happening yet, but it's being, it's been announced. So like the world is, it's getting bigger. The movies are getting bigger. Basically Transformers has done, has done really big, big stuff. And this is a movie that, even though it does get a sequel, it is a purely original yeah. film. I, IP is the most important currency by this point, yeah. and yeah. still to this day. Still, but Brian th- Moore this is that, really yeah. like 2012 is is really when we hit on just like you cannot make a movie over a hundred million dollars if it's not based on something previously popular. And I mean, and, and also with the big star too. Like, I mean, Charlie Hunnam is a guy where like. He was in stuff, mm-hmm. but like he wasn't, he was in Sons of Anarchy, but like he wasn't big yet. Yeah. Idris, Idris wasn't even necessarily. Idris wasn't big yet. Big no. Yet. Yeah. He, 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 like Lu- television. he was in Luther. Uh, yeah. Is what Wyatt, it was. But... Yeah. So he, he, had, he was in Thor in 2011. So he wasn't that big. Um, apparently that part too was offered to Tom Cruise initially, but he couldn't do it because of scheduling conflicts. <laughs> He was he was filming Eyes Wide Shut. Yeah, still filming Eyes Wide Shut. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so this it's a it's a it's an interesting movie because I, I don't love this movie. Nope, me neither. Um, but but the film, for what it is, has some sort of heart to it that isn't present in other films of the era. I can watch this movie and tell that it is a very loving homage to kaiju films. I'm yes. not a kaiju film person that the kaiju movies have never really appealed to me. I just, I can't get, you know, I, I don't like seeing buildings smashed. I can't get it out of my head. No matter how much the movie is like, Oh, it's okay. Like we've evacuated everybody. I just, I, I can't. <laughs> and the, the only kaiju movie, even remotely kaiju movie I've enjoyed immensely was was kong skull island and i feel like that's because it was all on this uh, island, island. <laughs> yeah and i didn't have to worry about skyscrapers getting smashed and and so like i can i can watch this one and and see del toro having a good time you know when when a yeah when a jaeger picks up a cruise ship and clocks a kaiju across the face with like a the the giant boat yeah i'm like okay yeah 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 that's that's fun that's inventive i'm sure they're having a great time putting it together but yeah, it's just it it's it it does the whole time you're watching this movie it feels like it is made for people who grew up loving the Godzilla movies and that's just that's yeah. not me. Yeah. So, I mean same. Same. 
I I think it's one that when I watched the when I watched it because I hadn't seen this one before, I was like, I wonder how it'd feel if I saw us in theaters. Mm, yeah. Because I feel like I, we we saw I saw Con- were you did we go to Comic Con? We went we went, we yeah. went together. Yeah, yeah. And we were like the only ones in the theater. We were like, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I I agree. I agree. I I definitely probably lost something watching it on my laptop, but. <laughs> way del toro intended um no because i was watching i mean i was watching on tv and there's the scenes when it gets like the one that's the humans it's okay it reminds me a little bit of avatar where Mm -hmm. like you know how like avatar like when you go into the the world of the navi and and kind of pandora it looks beautiful and the, the 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 effects are amazing the 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 visuals are amazing but then when you get to the people something just like feels off like they're in a digital world mm-hmm. and that's how i felt with this movie a lot of times like when they're like in the control room it just feels like idris is front of a bunch of green screens yeah i i specifically to that point when when charlie day goes looking for ron perlman yeah there's these shots on like the streets of of i think they're in tokyo is that where they're, they're meant to be they're in hong kong hong, hong kong, kong. Yeah. Um, there's these shots on like the streets of Hong Kong where he's walking through what you can obviously tell is like a whole city block that they've yeah. built. And I'm like, Oh, this is del Toro, you know? And he goes into Ron Perlman's little like hideout and there's all these monster pieces around and it's brightly lit. But yeah, when they're, when they're in their like base and everything's just like metallic and a lot of green screens, like computer screens and stuff. I'm just like this, this is not, it's not what I what I come to a Del Toro movie for, you know. Yeah, so yeah, I, I'm I'm the same boat. Like I think it's it has some of his themes. It, they're they're kind of buried within it all, but it does have some of his themes. It's kind of the there is this kind of loss of innocence. Like it's like both these. I mean, a lot of these characters. It's about loss. Like it's mm-hmm. it's Charlie Hunnam's lost his brother, um, who he saw basically die. Where they're connected mentally, he actually feels and sees his brother dying and that's something you kind of can't come back from and and then uh, maku who kind of ends up being his partner um played by uh rinko kikuchi i apologize for butchering that name but she's kind of she's also someone who's who suffered loss as well mm-hmm. um and idris is kind of this like surrogate father there's there's like interesting kind of father relationships with yep. with maku and with um uh with marshall idris's character but there's also kind of father some relationships with kind of the the Hansons, the the two kind of co-pilots who are father and son. Um, they're the the son is kind of like Hunnam's rival essentially. Um, so you have certain things like that in this movie. But yeah, it just it it doesn't. I say I think I think there's heart to it in this film, which is a rarity. I think for a lot of movies about I mean for a movie about giant robots hitting uh, hitting monsters, uh, that's a rarity. Mm-hmm. but it it doesn't land for me in this moment in time yeah i think I, I think it's one i think it's one of his his weaker movies in my opinion but if i saw it in theaters i might think differently so if it's showing near me which it kind of is soon i might i might go see it again just to see if i like <laughs> it more um so del toro had never shot a film in less than 115 days uh up to this point apparently uh, but he had only 103 days to shoot Pacific Rim. In order to achieve that, Del Toro scheduled a splinter unit that could direct early in the day before main unit and then on his off days. 
Uh, the director worked 17 to 18 hours a day, really? seven days a week for much of the schedule. Um, he developed a new approach to directing actors, allowing looser movements and improv, uh, but he still maintained tight control over the production. Um, everything He said, everything 100% goes through me sooner or later. I, I do not delegate anything. Some people like it, some people don't, but it has to be done that way. You know who that sounds like to me? Sounds like James Cameron. <laughs> And speaking of James Cameron, I think Cameron would help out in the editing, but two other people would as well. Uh, Angeritu and uh, Alejandro Angeritu and Alfonso Cuaron helped with editing Pacific Rim because uh, Del Toro wanted to get down to as close to two hours as possible. It got to two, two, two hours and 11. Um, Angeritu apparently cut out 10 minutes of the movie when Cuaron cut out a few minutes. Uh, James Cameron also gets a special thanks with these two directors, as did David Cronenberg, by the mm. way. Because they shot in Toronto, apparently he set them up with a bunch of crew members they could have on Pacific Rim. But yeah, so this film, again, it still has like the fairy tale little aspect to it. Like it has the prologue. It's like a 17 minute prologue. I was mm-hmm. like, we're just spending a lot of time in this in this world. Cause it's like, it, 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 it was one of those things I was like, oh, wow, we jumped into the action real quick. And then it's it, mimic. And then it's, it was it's like, mimic yeah, again. It's yeah. like, like mimic. Yeah. It's like, oh, wow. Okay. We're already fighting these kaiju. And then it's like, and that was five years ago. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and it's interesting narrating it. So again, it's like, it's very much just like, he says like, oh, like this many years ago, kaiju started appearing on the San Francisco coast. Again, it's this very once upon a time, Again, fairy tale like thing. I, I mean, I didn't expect to find all this in like all, almost all of his movies at this point, where you mm-hmm. have this like opening bit of like, here's the world you need to know. Um, but it's all been here. But yeah, it's it's odd. So the film the film would finish up shooting in April 2012. It was not released until a year later, July 2013. Mm. Um I think because the the VFX with this, and I think they ended up converting the 3D. Uh, Del Toro initially didn't plan on shooting it. He didn't shoot in 3D. He didn't plan on converting it in 3D. But then I think he later on decided to to redo that and actually spent 40 weeks longer to do the 3D conversion. So basically, it took a while to to adapt that to 3D. Um, the film would be released. It would get decent reviews. I think a lot of people kind of comment on like it's a big monster movie, but with heart, which is mm. very much Del Toro. Um, the film, however, would be Del Toro's biggest hit, grossing a total of four hundred and eleven million dollars worldwide. But it only made a hundred of that million in North America. Apparently, it was one of the few movies around that time that actually made more money in China and other countries than it did in America. Imagine that. <laughs> yeah. It grossed total of $114 million in China, making it making China the largest market for this film. So yeah, it was a rare English film in history to cross $400 million while barely cross, crossing $100 million domestically. But yeah, it, it, a lot of people, I think, love it for the filmmaking of it um, and for its heart. It would get a sequel that Del Toro would produce, Pacific Rim Uprising. Uh, also, weird thing I found out, it also developed a, a, something that's very much similar to the Bechtel test called the the mako mori test because mako mori mako mori is the is the female character in the movie that, that's charlie hunnam's partner um when they're in the monster but she's a character that it has a arc has a story that's not related to the character of the, of the lead male character but she doesn't talk with another woman mm. in the movie so they developed this test as like an offshoot of the bechtel test to kind of say like 
just because there's not a woman that there is like a feminist arc to this character yeah. um but like the Bechdel test it also has gotten criticism but you can research that on your own um so yeah so that's kind of where we're at with these three movies and so what now we're here like what are your how do you feel about the themes and the tropes and the motifs that he's doing like is it how is it in compared to the past two weeks we've done they're they're still there you know i think we 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 lose them a little bit with pacific rim but yeah. but like you said we we get smatterings you know we get this moment where charlie hunnam's character is in uh mako's mind seeing her experience the kaijus as a as a kid so we literally mm-hmm. have you know forcing someone into a childlike yeah. point of view right. um so we have a, we have a little bit of smatterings it still has del toro flavor on it i do think yeah this one feels a lot less like his stamp throughout and and i think you're gonna say you know a lot of the reviews were like oh it's a big monster movie but with a lot of heart i i, I from my friends who i know saw it in theaters when it came out I, there were uh-huh. there was a weird group of my like film friends who were like super into it and yeah. i think it was this idea of like oh if you approach it like a transformers movie then you you're going to be like very pleasantly surprised by what del toro brings to the table i think yeah. what we're doing with this month is approaching all these movies like del toro <laughs> movies yeah which is kind of the opposite treatment and and that's a fair so point. that's why we might be a little bit more disappointed in what it has to offer but you know if we were doing a, a kaiju movie month this might emerge as our like favorite favorite kaiju one movie. <laughs> Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, again, I think that's sometimes you got to realize with the show or people don't realize what we do with the show. It's like we try to have a pers- look at the perspective like, okay, cool, this as a this person movie or whatever. Um, because, yeah, in comparison to Transformers movies, I'd probably say they're way, way better. I'm sorry yeah. if you like the Transformers movies, but like, I, like, I would like this more than some of the tra- most Transformers movies. Um, but as a Del Toro film, like you're saying, it... it, it it doesn't check a lot of the boxes that are in his films that make his films purely him. And maybe it is purely him. Maybe it's more buried. All stuff is more buried in it. And I think visually it's, it's mostly him. I think that's, that's all his visuals and what he likes doing. Um, but yeah, it just feels, it just feels different than the rest of it. I think, I think it's, it's the, I'm not saying it's mimic in terms of quality, but I'm saying it feels like the closest to mimic is like, it feels more like a, just a plain crowd pleaser mm-hmm. or just a crowd pleaser um with heart with some thoughts behind it and comments on it just feels a little bit um distant from the other del toro films we've watched yeah but obviously and this is probably for that reason as well just talking about this week holding up to the past weeks obviously pants labyrinth is is his his real you know seal of this this is me this is guillermo del toro like we yeah. said i think it's become kind of the touchstone for what is a guillermo, guillermo del toro film yeah and then like i was saying i i absolutely love all of his his auteur flavor that he brings to hellboy 2 immediately after that so yeah definitely the 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 childlike viewpoint the the fairy tales viewing something kind of dark through a fairy tale like you said kind of bringing back those classic Grimm's fairy tales and and very interested to see where that heads next week because i feel like next week he he kind of starts branching out a little bit with yeah um, with all these things because mm-hmm. i think next week feels like 
for lack of a better word, feels like the most adult mm-hmm. of his of his parts that we've done. And and we've had we've we talked a little bit with like Devil's Backbone about how it was a tribute to kind of the castle horror films yeah. or the hammer horror films. And I do think next week what I'm expecting is next week's period that we're tackling feels like his his, his he's specifically tackling genres and you know maybe he started yeah. that with with pacific rim i think kind of kicks that off it's yeah. like what if i did a kaiju movie mm-hmm. in modern day with all of the resources that are available to me and i think next week is when we're really going to see him take three films that are essentially what if i take this genre especially like classic genres with these three yeah what if i take this really classic genre that i love and update it is is what we're gonna see next week yeah, or just yeah, uh, this specific period I love and mm-hmm. update it. So you have next we're doing Crimson Peak, The Shape of Water, and Nightmare Alley. Um, Nightmare Alley I know is currently streaming on HBO Max and Hulu. For those that, if you want to go see it, Crimson Peak is currently streaming on uh, Netflix, and then Shape of Water is currently streaming on Hulu. So I it's by the first week where all of them are streaming. <laughs> I think you can go see. So go check them out if you can. If you haven't. You haven't watched them in a while. Um, I'm going to rewatch Nightmare Alley, even though I just watched this a few months ago. Um, but yeah, so check those out. That'll be our final part of our Del Toro series this month. So be be prepared. We'll probably have rankings at the end. It'll be interesting. I think the rankings are going to be interesting because mm-hmm. I feel like there's a lot kind of right together and then some that kind of go to the top. Um, so that's all we have for you in this episode. If you're a fan of the show or a new listener, make sure you subscribe to the Nation Podcast so that you can stay up to date on all of our new episodes. You can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever your podcast. And if you haven't already, make sure you rise from whatever platform you listen to the show on. You know, recommend us to your friends, recommend us to your coworkers. But if it's it's easier, you just go online, type up, I, I like this podcast. This is great. You should listen to it. Then you can recommend us to literally everyone. So really easy. <laughs> Yeah, five stars, much appreciated. It helps kind of get the show out there to more people. So help us out. Be part of the team. And finally, don't forget to like and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all that jazz. As always, Thomas, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. And thank you all for listening. Hope you listen to more episodes soon. Bye. Bye.